So we're continuing to work our way through Genesis. This morning we're in chapter 20. And um, Marion and I were having a little conversation earlier this morning. He said I was, he was surprised that I decided to preach this passage. And I said, yeah, um, I kind of had gone back and forth on whether or not to preach 20, chapter 20, not because there's anything bad about it or anything. It's just kind of flat. It's not a passage you just get really excited about. But it is a passage, and I think you'll see this morning, it's a passage that um, really kind of hits home. Because I, when I read this section and then I put it in the context of Genesis chapter 12, a place we've already been, um, I see myself all over it. And so um, I hope this morning you'll see some of the same things in there. I want to tell you uh, just a little bit, I ask you to be praying for me. We'll be, uh, I will be leaving this coming weekend, next uh, Friday, um, on my annual training. And I'll be gone for several weeks um, with the National Guard. And um, I'll be with one of our C-17s, and then we'll also have some maintenance guys that I'll be spending time with. So I'll be gone with them for a couple of weeks. Um, great thing is, Marion will continue right here and uh, right through the next several chapters of Genesis. And then after those two weeks, then the third week is our General Assembly. And so I'll be down in Mobile for that, along with... Uh, Rush Utley and George Roundtree, and so looking forward to our denominational meeting. So it's going to be a few weeks before I see you again, um, so I'll be praying for you. I hope you'll be praying for me, and then um, I hope you get a chance. My brother's here this morning, so I want you <laughs> he's the one with the beard, uh, uh, so I want you to meet my brother and my sister-in-law and their uh, son, Noah. And um, so if you get a chance, swing over there and say hi to them. But they came over for a visit. So Genesis chapter 19, if you've got a pew Bible, then you're on page 13 is where you are. And um, we're going to read this chapter together and then, um, and then talk about it. Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, She is my sister, said of his wife, Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had gone had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. And that is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. 
Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought so uh, such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Let's pray. Father, we want to give you thanks this morning for your word, and we want to ask that you'll help us, you'll aid us in our understanding of it. But more than that, Father, we want it to be a part of our lives. We want it to change us. And so we ask this morning that you would not leave us as we came this morning, but on account of your word, that you would be at work in us. You would transform us continually after the image of your Son, and all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you see yourself here? Chapter 20? Somewhere? Anywhere? Probably not. So let's get to work, shall we? You've got, a, uh, you've got an outline in your bulletin. And uh, you'll notice there that we're talking about the uh, subject is when faith falters. And the first thing I want you to see is the temptation that never sleeps. When we moved into our house um, this past uh, late summer, about nine or ten months ago, we moved in, we had a three-year-old, a new three-year-old wandering the house. Now, it's been a while since we had a three-year-old, and um, this three-year-old was doing what most three-year-olds do, and that is get into everything. And so Jody, being the good mother that she is, began to, you know, put wall socket plugs in and, and she, you know, put a giant chain on the kitchen sink, you know, with the counter underneath there and everything that needed to be, uh, childproof, Jody began to childproof, which is what any good mother would do. But we had these handles in our house, door handles. They're not the kind of knobs that you turn that would be difficult for, uh, three-year-old to grab a hold of and turn. They're the up and down levers. Okay. Are you with me? Now that posed a great challenge because we didn't want to go through the house changing all of those doorknobs, you know, from levers into handles. And so we just closed the doors good. And, and, um, and what we began doing was locking them actually. 
And then if, if you needed to get in there, you'd have to get a little pin and poke. Anyways, it was a mess. And we didn't always do it. And so not terribly long after we got into the house, Kylie found her way into the bathroom. And a big bowl of water was in there that she discovered. Are you tracking? Jody and I made it very unpleasant for her to have discovered that big bowl of water in the bathroom. But it seemed like no, un, no amount of unpleasantness would keep her from going back into the bathroom to discover and play in that big bowl of water. Nothing that we did seemed to stop her from going in there until finally she just got bored with it and tired of the showers and the soaping and everything that accompanied it. But we couldn't get her off of it for a while. She was focused on finding that bowl of water in the bathroom. I don't know about you, when I come to this passage and I read these first two verses Right? Abraham moved on from there to the region of the Negev. And then he, he said, while they were in Gerar, he said to his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. It's the same story that we've had again. So when I get there and I read those two verses, I scratch my head a little bit and I go, haven't we been here before? And we have. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt, and when they got down there, or they were on their way, remember, Abraham looked at his wife Sarah and said, when we get there, this is the story. The story is, you're my sister, not my wife. And you'll recall that when we went through it in Genesis chapter 12, we talked about Abraham's lack of faith, because God had just promised him. I will be for you and against those who are against you. And yet when they got down to Egypt, he couldn't help himself. He went into defensive mode and he began to self-protect and come up with all of these uh, concocted stories instead of just going with God's promise. And so here we are. We are right back in the same place we were earlier Abraham gives his reasoning. Um, Abimelech wants to know, why is it that you've done this? Why did you do this? And Abimelech and, and Abraham answers him. And here's his answers. It's threefold. He says, well, I believe that there was no fear of God in this place and that you would surely kill me for my wife. Right, that's pretty good. That's sound reasoning. Um, he, he understood that the kings of the nations were not God-fearing people, and that his wife, being beautiful, perhaps would, would catch the eye of one of these kings, and they would kill Abraham and take his wife. That was his first rationalization. The second part of the story was, she's my half-sister, which is true. But that's not the whole story. She is his half-sister, but more than that, she is his wife. And the final part was, it was just their routine. This was their story. They had put this story together when they were early in their marriage, and it was a story that they just stuck to. They just couldn't get out of the habit of telling the story, apparently. Even though God had given him these promises. And so you go back and you think about this, you think about the promise that God had given to him, that he would 
bless those who blessed him. He would curse those who cursed him. God had squarely put himself in Abraham's corner. Listen, Abraham, I am for you. He had promised Abraham, listen, you will be the father of a great nation. I, they've had even more than that now because they had the promise that Sarah was going to have a son. None of that can happen if God lets Abimelech or another king kill Abraham and take his wife. And so you have to, at this point, sort of call a spade a spade. What Abraham did was sinful. He was doubting. He he was not trusting. It was a lack of faith on his part because he had very straightforward promises from God. Now here is where the story begins to, I, I hope, resonate in your heart somewhat, right? Just like Kylie couldn't stop going to that room and finding that big bowl of water and playing in it, no matter the consequences, Abraham could not stop going to the story. He couldn't stop doubting at that very specific point in his faithful walk with the Lord. He doubted, and he couldn't help it. It's like no matter what he did, no matter what God said to him, Abraham still went there. Now let me ask you a question. Where is it in your life that you go to, right, what is the what is the thing that you just can't help yourself? It calls out to you. It cries out to you. And when it cries, when it calls, when that temptation comes, and it does, you succumb to it. It's there. It's in your life. What is it? What is the thing? Worry, doubt, fear, lust. Where is it? What is it? Because it's no doubt there. We see it all the way through Scripture, man after man, woman after woman, dealing with it. it listen, a lack of faith doesn't normally... It, the Christians struggle with faith. Isn't usually... We don't go from living a faithful life to suddenly doubting the divinity of Christ. Those aren't usually the sorts of doubts. Those, those aren't the reckonings of faith that we have. It's when the C word is uttered by the doctor. Right? Those are the moments where our faith falters. What does it look like in your life? There's a temptation to doubt God when things like that come. A temptation to be faithful, or I mean faithless. When we're living, life is happening all around us. And things enter our life like that that are difficult. That's the way it was in Abraham's life. Marion read for us Romans 7. I want you to listen to that one little section of it again and tell me that that section doesn't resonate a little in your life. Paul says in verse 14, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. This is where it's a little bit of a woodchuck chuck, okay? For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. Does that resonate at all with you? What I want to do, that I don't do, but what I hate, that I do. 
See, Paul's saying, listen, there's a giant bowl and I, just gravity draws me towards it. I don't want to go there. I don't want to end up at that place, but I do. And it happens time and time and time again. What keeps us from following through on the saving faith that we exercised when we trusted Christ? What is it that keeps you from following through on that? And it's this. That in many ways, we are still unspiritual. In many ways, our hearts still have spots in them. Places that we will go. Rooms that have yet to be opened and, and cleaned. And we will go there. So don't be shocked and don't be surprised when it happens to you. Abraham experienced it. Paul experienced it. Every other person in the Bible experienced it except for one. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Every single saint has been there. So don't be shocked. And don't be surprised. And if you aren't shocked and you aren't surprised, then what should you be? How about saddened? Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. And the reason that we mourn is that we live in a world ravaged by sin. And we ourselves and our lives know and experience sin. And sin should cause us to mourn. It should push us to that place where we see it, we understand it, we know it, and we should mourn for it when it happens in our lives. Now, where does that leave us? I want to give you two verses. You can jot them down. I want to give you two verses to hold fast to. Because where we're left is this. Sin is constant, the temptation is constant, but it's never crushing. Temptation is constant, but it's never crushing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Any navigators among us? You memorized this one early on, right? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you can bear. But when you are tempted, He is faithful. And He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, no temptation has seized you except what is common to everybody. Every man has experienced the same thing. And God is faithful and there is a way of escape. But you say, yeah, but I don't always find it. So how about the second verse? Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach 
God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How about that? How about we hold on to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and then when the rug is pulled out from under us and we slip and we fall, we run to Hebrews chapter 4. And there we find a great high priest who is able to empathize with us because he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. And because he was without sin, he has made the way clear for us to know the grace and mercy of God. All right, the second thing I want you to see, if you look at your outline, is the X factor of the world's response. The X factor of the world's response. Now, this little section that we're in, right? It's, it's a strange and wonderful passage. Strange and wonderful for at least these reasons. In this passage, you and I get a picture of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So for Presbyterians, this is one of those passages. You're, 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 you're talking to your buddy and you're down at the Cafe 44 and you're sitting there and you're visiting and you're laboring to, to get him or her to understand the sovereignty of God, right? He's sovereign over everything, every move you make, every decision, everything that happens. That's all over Scripture. But your buddy's pushing back on you. Yeah, but you've got to make a decision. You've got to do something. You've got you to respond in faith. And so there you are. And this tug of war is happening. Next time, you can go to Genesis chapter 20. And you can take them because right here is a picture of both of them. And they're in the, the person of Abimelech, no less. A pagan king. God comes to him and basically says, Abimelech, you're dead meat. I'm going to take you out, buddy. Abimelech says, hold on a second. Why? Why are you going to take me out? And the answer is because you sinned against me. That's what God tells Abimelech. In verse 6, he says, I have kept you sinning against me. I have kept you from sinning against me. And so here's Abimelech. He's in this situation. Abimelech has a defense. He comes. He offers up his defense to God. In verses 6 and 7, we see that the sovereignty of God is there, and so is the responsibility of man. Look at it. Verses 6 and 7. And God said this to him in a dream. Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, so I've kept you from sinning against me. This is why I did not let you touch her. Okay? So, there is the sovereignty of God. I kept you from sinning. But let's read on. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. You see what God does? God says, look, Abimelech, I kept you from sinning. I kept you from going down that road. However, I want you to respond. I want you to let that man's wife go. I want you to send her back to Abraham. And if you don't, there will be some hefty consequences for you to pay. 
the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. Listen, don't ever doubt the singular fact that God is restraining evil in the world, evil in your own life, and yet He still calls on us and He still calls on the world to respond to Him in ways that honor Him. Is God sovereign over your life? You better believe it. Sometimes we do the Heidelberg Catechism in which we confess that not a hair falls from our head without the will of our Father. And yet, He asks you and I to respond in faith and to live life underneath that sovereignty. Now, one of the other things that's happening here is that the law is at work, right? The law is at work. It's, it's being utilized. How Abimelech responds is interesting because he is a pagan king. God is coming to him and he's saying, listen, here are the rules. And he sets them before him and he says, essentially, there will be consequences if you don't follow through, if you don't do the right thing. And that gives rise to just a little bit of a theological point, if you'll indulge me, okay? And that is for us to remember how it is that the law of God is used in the world in which we live. And the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, those guys, they always said that there were three uses of the law. The first purpose of the law was to be a mirror, okay? And so that law that God gives to us, we would look at it, and in it we would see who we really were, that we were failures, that we couldn't keep the law. So it was a mirror reflecting to us our real selves. The second purpose of the law was that it was used as a restraint for evil. So the law was there, and where the law was there, it suppressed, it tamped down the evil desires of man. And so what you're seeing here in Abimelech's life is that the law is fulfilling some of that purpose. It is tamping down what would normally have been just a slam dunk for King Abimelech, and that is, yeah, I like Sarah, she's beautiful, I'm going to make her a part of my harem. But in this instance, God comes and the law tamps down the evil desires of King Abimelech's heart. And then the third use of the law was to reveal what is pleasing to God for those who are His. Notice that there is no purpose in the law to save you. The law never saves. And so here in this story, there's some law at work. And it's at work restraining the evil heart of Abimelech. And his response is critical. And the world in which we live in, the response of the world is critical because God's law is at work around us. We may call it common grace or some sort of common law that people, they don't know where it necessarily comes from. We just kind of all seem to agree to it. We understand that it's been imposed on us from the outside because God has given it to us. And we see it at work in the people around us 
And sometimes we see its violation and the destruction that follows. All right, let's move on to the third point. I want you to see the grace that God's servant brings. The last two points are somewhat shorter, but I want you to see in this little section, there's no getting around a very important part of the story, and that is we already see in Genesis 20, verse 17, we see Abraham becoming that blessing to the nations that God said he would become. And we see it in a very weird way, and that is in, in verse 17, Abraham prays for King Abimelech and his family and, and all those people who are in his court. And what he prays for is that his women, the women, who, slaves, and, and those who are there would have children, would, their wombs would be opened. You kind of scratch your head. It's a, it's, it, it is somewhat odd, but that's what Abraham prays for him because God had apparently not allowed them to have children during this period. And so here is Abraham going before God. We've been here before. before. We were here in chapter 18, remember? Abraham went and he prayed for the city of Sodom. He prayed for God's name for the city of Sodom, and for the righteous who dwelled there. And now here is Abraham praying for a pagan king and his family. Genesis 20, verse 17. You find that a little odd? Tim Keller's fond of saying, God never calls you to himself. He never blesses you without also making you a blessing. And in this instance, Abraham is a blessing to a pagan king. Second Corinthians chapter one verse three, if you want to maybe jot that little note in your Bible. Second Corinthians chapter one verse three. The Apostle Paul says it this way. That God has worked in your life so that the things that he has done in your life would overflow into the lives of others. That the affliction you have endured, the suffering that you have gone through, he has ministered to you in the midst of that so that you would be a minister to others. Your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your family, right? He never blesses you without also making you a blessing. And that's what he had promised to do in the life of Abraham. We just maybe don't expect to see it so quickly, but here he is again acting as a prophet and somewhat of a priest interceding for a pagan king. Let me ask you, who are you interceding for? Are you, being, are you a blessing to those around you in, in some description, in some way? Father Abraham was. Our fourth point is this, the intervention that we can be thankful for. We looked at the passage. I want you to just take a step back, and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about Abraham moving into this section, the folly of, of his life, right? The way that he goes about living in this chapter. It's not exactly 
what you're hoping for when you think about a man of faith who ends up in Hebrews chapter 11. He puts his wife in grave danger, his family in danger. I mean, lying to a, a king who was obviously more powerful than he was, just probably not the smartest move, but he did it anyways. And think about this. When he did that, what else did he put in danger? He put his wife in danger. He put his family in danger. He put the promise of God in his life in danger. Because remember what God had promised him. I will make you a blessing to the nations. I will give you descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens above. God had made all of those promises to him. And he put them on the line and jeopardized them by telling this lie to King Abimelech. But I want you to notice verse 3. Verse 3 starts off with two words. But God. How often does that happen? Only all the time, okay? But God came to Abimelech in a dream. Isn't that comforting to you? It should be very comforting to know that no matter what a mess you make of life, of the promises of God, there's always a but God. You want me to share it with you? I want to share it with you. Romans chapter 5 beginning at verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. You see, at just the right time. At just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, Paul says, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And then, verse 8, he says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. In what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that a beautiful but, God? But God, He intervened. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that more than you know. Because I often put myself in the position of making a mess of whatever it is that God's trying to do in my life and the life of those around me. And to know that while I was powerless, while I'm unable to do, God does. And He does for me. Let's pray. Father, we want to pause and we want to thank You for our a passage like this that reminds us that when our faith falters, you were there. You pick up the pieces. You put us back together again. You provide for us in ways that we can never provide for ourselves. And so we want to thank you. We want to praise you. 
And Father, we pray that you will call to mind the many ways in which you've done this in the person and work of Christ for us. We pray these things in his matchless name. Amen.